Hello and welcome everyone to the Fate of the Union podcast, a weekly review of the biggest issues in national politics given from a conservative perspective. The show will also periodically address current true crime cases from across the country. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's talk about the fate of the Union. Welcome in, everybody, to Fate of the Union. The date of recording of this episode is Thursday, February 18th, 2021. Uh, It's your host, Franklin, once again. And today, first and foremost, we're going to go over a little bit of the life and really legacy, especially as it pertains to political commentary and political commentary broadcasting. Um, And that is... More specifically, as I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware, the passing of one Rush Limbaugh. Um, Rush obviously had a very, very long and well-noted career, uh, both mainly syndicated on AM and FM radio stations, but obviously became known through uh, making the New York Times bestseller list, uh, also in the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame, uh, among other notable achievements. So we're going to go over a little bit of the life and legacy of Rush Limbaugh and then kind of go where how his passing is being received by various people on the political spectrum and really seeing does his passing have any lasting impacts as far as the landscape of political commentary um, on our side of the aisle. Now that it is a tremendous void and presence in the space of conservative-leaning political commentary lost with the passing of Rush Limbaugh. So we'll take it kind of from the top. Uh, He was best known as the host of his self-titled Rush Limbaugh show, um, again, nationally syndicated on both AM and FM radio stations. And he also hosted a national television show for a few years in the 90s. Uh, In 2018, Forbes listed his earnings at $84.5 million. He was obviously very, very successful. Um, He was noted both at first in radio broadcasting, not so much TV, but he did come to have a presence on television as well. And throughout his his history and, and really presence on on radio, Rush was kind of a tastemaker as far as being very fervent in his support of Republican politicians, but doing so in a way that really uh, engaged his listeners. He had a very, very dedicated fan base that really grew to to care a great deal about the program. And it's worth noting that for really the entirety of his career, Rush did the show by himself. Um, he would obviously periodically have guests on or go back and forth with with another uh, guest in the studio, but we're talking about a guy well into his 60s and you know all the way up until you know very recently before passing uh, on February 17th at the age of 70 
who is doing several hours of a radio block con- you know, continuously just by himself and just kind of going off the cuff every day, uh, fielding calls, going back and forth with callers, and really providing a full hours-long feature radio program, which um, doing so well into his 60s and doing so at such a prominent level and such a a noteworthy level that everybody uh, on this side of the aisle, whether you disagreed with him or not, you were always aware of what Rush's takes on the big issues of the day were, just because, like I said earlier, he occupied that kind of space um, in political commentary. Uh, More recently, um, we've seen some of the statements that uh, have come out since his passing. He had a a long battle with with lung cancer, and at various points over the last six months in particular, it looked like things were not doing so well. And while Grimm, uh, you hoped for the best, but uh, like I said, for the last few months in particular, the some of the news that you've heard from from what was released was um, kind of depressing and and um, disheartening for uh, maybe where the trajectory of this year was going for Rush. But um, nevertheless, he did pass away uh, this week at the age of seventy, and the responses to his passing really ran the full gamut. A lot of members of the right of what's perhaps more specifically the neocon, neoconservative right, were predictably, but still, I think, to be fair, justifiably uh, saddened by Russia's passing. Of of those individuals, you point to the, the folks over at The Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro, uh, People over at the Blaze, um, certainly with with Glenn Beck and Mark Levin uh, and Stephen Crowder, um, Glenn Beck and Mark Levin, of course, uh, have had their own presence in uh, the right leaning political commentary themselves, and obviously, kind of their reaction and content commentary in the midst of Russia's passing was was certainly heartfelt and, again, like I said, justifiable because, um, as we'll see in a few minutes, he really did have such tremendous impact in this industry, if you call it that, the industry of political commentary. Um, And even members of kind of the more dissident right, the online trolley kind of right, it was interesting because politics-wise, they probably didn't agree with Rush on a certain, you know, amount of big time topics. Uh, foreign affairs is probably one of, if not the biggest one. But a lot of them still seem to find time and and really find the space to note what uh, a noteworthy career Rush did have. And I think maybe some of them could appreciate that. Although their views diverge, 
like I said, especially when it comes to foreign affairs, the way that Rush went about his business and really went head on into to certain fires, which we'll speak of in a few minutes, I think it'd still be appreciated from, again, those kind of dissident right members, because um, I think they s- certainly have an affinity or a certain appreciation for somebody who's at least to some degree on their side for a lot of issues and could go have used the huge platform that he has and go um, so so intensely into into the belly of the beast. So that was an interesting dynamic as well. And then, of course, predictably, we have uh, the left, and really more specifically, the progressive-leaning left, which is becoming an ever-increasing contingent of the left side of the political aisle, and the kind of online blue check marks you see on Twitter. Uh, just go stroll over to anybody who works for the Young Turks and their takes and responses in regards to the passing of Rush Limbaugh, it really is indicative of how that side of the aisle feels um, in, in the wake of, of Rush's death. Uh, specifically, Cenk Uger, who's kind of the really the, the figurehead and of the Young Turks said that, of course, we don't need to mourn the death, or it's not worthy of mourning the death of Rush Limbaugh because he lived such a life and expressed such views that um, we're really not missing anything. He was a bad person, um, according to Cenk Uger. This, of course, is someone who has year after year taken millions upon billions of dollars from anti-freedom nations like Qatar, who engages in every muddy, down-in-the-gutter type of character attacks in politics that you could ever hope to avoid. Um, If you remember back during, uh, must have been the 2008, um, or maybe perhaps in the run leading up to the 2012 election, Sarah Palin had made um, some commentary, perhaps it was more recently than that, but um, Sarah Palin had made some comments about how the rioting done by Black Lives Matter um, basically trying to make the argument that these people were not protesters, they were really more accurately rioters. And if you go back into that statement that she made, she particularly says these people are not peaceful. Um, And of course, Cenk reported it as they're not people. Meaning that he heard Sarah Palin say that the presumably uh, mostly black individuals in the streets, well, they really were subhuman. They were not even people. Uh, if you go back and listen to the audio, it's pretty clear that she says peaceful. They're not; they weren't being peaceful. The black individuals um, in that city at the time, and even regardless, if you use just a modicum of common sense, a politician or even former politician who has any hope of having a future career whatsoever, obviously wouldn't say that a certain race of human beings aren't really people, they're subhuman 
dregs of the country. So even just by an exercise of very simple common sense, you would think that someone with Sarah Palin's stature and her place, although diminished, but still somewhat of a place in um, in politics, would say such a thing. Obviously, she wouldn't just voluntarily flush any semblance of a career down the toilet with doing so, um, besides the fact that it is very clear that she, that's not what she said. Um, but returning back to the commentary on Rush Limbaugh more specifically, that is indicative of the take that Rush said bad things. Um, he said incendiary things, according from this point of view, about the LGBT community. Um, of course, there was the issues um, regarding the Sandra Flute uh, incident uh, where she was trying to get more contraceptive access uh, on college campuses, and Rush said some pretty incendiary things, pretty um, controversial statements about her and perhaps her motives for wanting to do so. Um, and I think it's also interesting that later on in, in his life, while he was still very much engaged in political commentary and, and in his industry, because he really worked up until his death, uh, Rush Limbaugh did express publicly his regrets for some of the more controversial statements he said. And for a guy who essentially has a lifetime contract doing what he did and was not retired, he wasn't riding off into the sunset when he made those statements, um, attesting to his regrets for, for some of the harsher language he used, it comes off as a little bit more genuine because there's no ulterior motive there. He's not playing nice in order to get a radio deal. He, he has that one. He, that was never going away. He wasn't doing it to appease anybody he was in the room with. So there was no other avenue that he was looking to get down besides, and, and by all accounts, truly regretting some of the things that he had said. And it's, it's not like he needed to do it. He was going to be just as successful, just as noteworthy, and his place in the industry would have been exactly the same, in my opinion, whether he voiced those regrets or not. So I think that does, it should carry uh, some weight with those who would initially show a great deal of disdain for Rush Limbaugh for some of his views and some of his statements. Um, nevertheless, uh, going forward, now, it's going to be interesting who, if anyone, replaces Rush Limbaugh. His listeners are obviously very, very used to having him on the radio, kind of has been their friend, you know, their, their buddy that they've gotten the news from for a lot of these listeners' decades at this point um, are probably around Rush's age at the time of his death, around 70 or even older, and have been listening to him for his whole career. So where do we go from here? Who, who will take on Rush Limbaugh's position, either 
literally in this slot on these stations, or perhaps even metaphorically as far as who's the next Rush Limbaugh in uh, conservative commentary. And a few names come to mind. Uh, I've heard a couple either uh, former President Donald Trump or Vice President Pence being a possible replacement. Uh, Vice President Pence actually does have a previous tenure in political talk radio back in Indiana, but I I highly doubt either one would um, be such a, a daily presence like that, um, given how the election went and given just the amount of exposure and amount of time it takes to you know constantly be doing a, a daily radio program. I can't see either of them doing that at this moment. Um, it's also worth noting a few people have pointed to perhaps guest hosts that have showed up from time to time while Rush was out for any number of reasons like uh, Todd Herman or Mark Stein you see him um, quite a bit on uh, Tucker Carlson's show I'm not sold on either of them either and that's not a slight against either individual I just don't see the likelihood of either one either one being being the replacement, even on a temporary basis. Um, even the, the the program's runners have said that it's similar to replacing Alex Trebek. And I think that's a, that's a good analogy because people who tune into Jeopardy Monday through Friday at 7 o'clock for decades at this point have been used to seeing the same person. It really does seem like you're at times you're catching up with with a pal, an old friend. And this perhaps even more so because he's talking to you about things that, that you're very interested in, you have a, a passionate uh, following for. Um, so while it is outstanding, I, it's moving on to who kind of takes that space in our side of the aisle, I know people have very hot and cold views on him, but I, I would have to point to someone like Ben Shapiro, who's in his mid-30s at this point, has already had well over a decade in in this space. He's settled in in the last few years, having his daily podcast simulcast on on radio as well as being online. So I think he's been poised to kind of be that person to the extent he's not already that person, but um, with the passing of Rush Limbaugh and really have to look at people like Glenn Beck, people like Mark Levin, um, a certain amount of what they do, especially Glenn Beck, is behind a paywall. So you wonder if there's going to be the access to to that's required to really take on the presence um, and fill in some of the void as far as uh, who you follow in in the wake of Russia's passing? So, um, my my eye would be on would be on Shapiro as a, a front runner to replace, if not literally, in those in those time slots on those stations, at least in name and in recognition going forward. One last story here before we get out of here for this week, and we'd really be remiss if we didn't go over 
What has been developing in, over in New York, and specifically the repercussions of the COVID response from Andrew Cuomo and his administration? And if you'll remember, for quite a while now, there had been, at first, initial allegations and then really substantiation to the extent of having what has now been an attorney general stepping in and conducting an investigation in response to Governor Cuomo's response to the virus, insofar as assigning uh, and quarantining individuals in nursing homes that, of course, are already home to highly susceptible individuals. Older people would have weakened immune systems. They have, obviously, a higher likelihood of having pre-existing conditions. And that action is so defied, defied any kind of common sense for where people with any kind of illness should be going. Certainly, they shouldn't be going and congregating or being in any kind of close proximity to those people who have weakened immune systems. And just as obviously, those in nursing homes and old age homes would be at the top of the list for people who you'd think would be susceptible and especially vulnerable to an illness that compromises your uh, respiratory system and your breathing. Uh, last month, to the point of the Attorney General, uh, she issued a report finding that the New York State Department of Health undercounted the COVID-19 deaths among residents of nursing homes by approximately 50%, essentially by leaving out deaths of residents who had been transferred to hospitals. Now, this is important because at first glance, when we heard of the plan to stick uh, covid infected individuals in nursing homes, again, at face value, it seemed like such a, a wildly irresponsible plan. And now that we know that the deaths not only had, were they troubling to begin with because they were a result of such a, a, a pinheaded, foolhardy plan, that's only half the damage, quite literally. That's only half the numbers of um, the total number of deaths. And a lot of people have been kind of wondering, what are the repercussions here for a guy who pretty much walks into re-election every, every campaign? Uh, somewhat similar to out in California with Gavin Newsom, there have been talks about a recall, there have been some calls for a resignation, but at the end of the day, it almost seems like you throw up your hands and you wonder, well, for a guy who wins so handily in such a heavily favorable district for his political party, at the end of the day, what's really going to happen here? Is it going to be some kind of fine on the administration? Uh, here in New York, there have been plans uh, to further restrict his emergency powers, which at the end of the day, he's, he's still a uh, dialing back restrictions now that President Biden has been inaugurated, and B, he still has his position, the fact that you're taking away some powers, A, is not really solving the problem. His judgment and his discretion is still being exercised in other issues aside from emergency issues, 
And number two, at the end, what what are you going to do? Are you going to kick over the decision to the New York State Senate, the state legislature? Um, as far as policy prescriptions, again, putting aside the the completely unwarranted COVID response plan, just in terms of general policy making, it's not going to be all that different if you kick it over to, say, the legislature body of New York State. Um, but personally, I think that this resolves in such a way where he'll either take a job in the Biden administration or um, cite some kind of other, I doubt it'll be health issues, but uh, perhaps personal issues, something that justifies not running again and kind of use that as pretext for the real reason is that he doesn't want to, he doesn't like his chances for re-election given uh, the outcry and, and backlash from his COVID response team, response, and he'll kind of mask those illusory reasons of either personal problems or taking another position as the real reason for not seeking re-election when it has become abundantly clear that if he does not seek re-election, we have clearly discovered the rationale for doing so.